Evening, everyone. Oh, come on. We've been doing this for how many weeks? Evening, everyone. Hey, there we go. Come on. Nice to have you with us. I'm excited to be here. I hope you're excited to be here. Let me welcome you. If it's your uh, first time with us, you're here uh, for Miles's dedication. Really stoked to have you over. We hope that you feel welcomed and uh, made uh, to feel uh, like you belong here. Uh, this is a really fascinating passage that we're dealing with tonight. Uh, as Grace has said, in your home groups this week, you probably have already realised that fact. Uh, I'm going to pray for us once more as we wrestle with it, and then let's have a think, hey? Let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that in it you reveal yourself to us. Uh, Lord, uh, in this particular passage tonight, uh, we confess that uh, our minds are going to struggle and our hearts are going to push back against what we're hearing. Uh, And so we ask, please, by your Holy Spirit, please be preparing us uh, to listen to you tonight. Not just to to hear what you're saying, but to respond to it with faith and obedience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Well, the the topic uh, that we are talking about tonight is the topic of evidence. Evidence for the Christian faith. And actually, uh, this passage that we've arrived at at this point, Luke 29 to 30, 11, 29 to 36, is kind of like part two of uh, a series that started last week. This is really just continuing on uh, from what we covered last week. I realise many people here weren't here last week, uh, so let me refresh your memory. If you've got a Bible, just look back earlier in chapter 11, or if you've got a series handbook, fold the page, look back at what we covered last week. You remember in, earlier in Luke 11, and about halfway through, Jesus has been casting out a demon, verse 14. And there's a great crowd who are watching him do this. And there's two main responses of the crowd. On the one hand, there are some people in the crowd who say, Jesus, you must be in league with the devil to be able to do that. To have that kind of power, uh, you must be in connection with Satan. And Jesus then goes on from verse 17 to demonstrate to them just how stupid a claim that is. He unpacks it. He shows that that can't possibly be the case. But the other half of the crowd, the other half of the people who were there say to Jesus, Uh, Verse 16, well, others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. And so when we get to our passage in verse 29, you'll see, as the crowds increased, Jesus said, this is a wicked generation. It, It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. So you see that today we are picking up on the question that was asked back in the middle of chapter 11. And I think that this question of evidence is a very relevant question for us in our day and age. The the question of what is the proof for the Christian faith? Uh, My personal experience has been that many, many people would like a sign from heaven. (laughs) Proof. Just drop down into their laps from God Almighty to confirm to them the truth of the Christian message. Plenty of people have said that to me over the years. If God is real, then why doesn't he show himself to me? He could do that, right? Surely he wants people to believe in him. So why doesn't he do it? Why doesn't he just put a big sign in the sky and write it across the horizon for everybody to see? You've had those kind of conversations before. They're pretty common. I suspect that there are probably people here tonight who think that way. You personally, perhaps, think, gosh, I, you know, I would like a sign from heaven. I would quite appreciate it if God could just confirm this to me once and for all. Uh, there are lots of people in our world who think that way. Uh, A couple of years ago, a research firm called McCrindle Research did a a really big survey of faith and belief in Australia. They surveyed over a thousand people in quite a lot of detail, did focus groups and stuff to follow up on it. And they published this report called Faith and Belief in Australia. It's a fascinating report. You can find it online for free. And what it does is it delves into the nitty gritty of what are people in Australia actually 
think? What do they believe? What's going on in their religious life? Some really counterintuitive conclusions that they come to in this report. So I'd encourage you to read it for that reason. The one that jumped out to me, the one that really surprised me when I read it, is that according to this study, over half of all Australians are prepared to change their religious beliefs based on the right circumstances and evidence. 52% of the people in this survey said that they would be somewhat, at least, willing to change their religious beliefs if they just got the right evidence proposed to them. If they got the signs given to them at the right time, then they would switch. That's an interesting conclusion, I think. It surprised me because, to be honest, I don't feel like there's that many people who are open to changing their religious belief. Most people are pretty well entrenched. Uh, but there are some, aren't there? There are some people who will ask that kind of a question, God, just give me a sign. Show me the proof, God, and I'll believe. There are, there are some people who will ask that question authentically, you know, genuinely wanting to find the truth and then to follow it. You know, there are some people that ask that question and you show them what God has done, what God has revealed of himself, and you give them some evidence and they will perhaps go away and, and read the Bible for themselves. Or maybe they'll come to a course like our Discover course and, in, and ask some more questions about it. There are genuine people asking those questions. But I reckon actually the majority of those 52% who said, yeah, I'd be willing to change based on the right evidence, that most of the people who say that are using that kind of line of logic as an avoidance technique to kind of keep God at arm's reach. They're people who actually have no real desire to change what they believe. And I think that's the key group of people that Jesus is speaking to here. In, in verse 16, those people who test him, uh, they are the kind of people who have seen a great miracle already. Remember, Jesus just cast out a demon and they go, yeah, come on, what else you got? <laughs> Give us some more proof, Jesus. Not convinced yet. Come on, keep it coming. They're just holding Jesus at arm's length. They're just playing games with him, really. That's the group of people that Jesus is addressing here. And it's really, really important. Can I, I can't stress this, stress this enough. It's really important that we understand that that is who Jesus is speaking to in this circumstance. Jesus is not about to address people who have genuine questions of faith. Those people who are genuinely seeking answers, looking for the truth. Jesus is all in favour of those people. And if that's you, then we want to encourage you in that to find answers. Jesus is addressing people who are playing games with him, procrastinating, avoiding Jesus by just asking for more and more proof, but they're never going to change their minds. And I think what this passage is doing is it's showing to us that there is a point at which Jesus' patience runs out with that kind of game playing. That people who, who say that to God, oh, come on, God, yeah, yeah, I'll be convinced if you show me more proof, more proof, more proof. Jesus' patience does run out at some point. That's what this passage is going to show us, and it's going to give us a warning. And so I actually want to say to you tonight, if, if, uh, if you're here as a Christian, then this passage probably is not speaking in the first instance to you. It's not addressed directly to you, at least, uh, because many of us are disciples of Jesus already. We are people who have considered the evidence and who have made a decision to follow Jesus on the basis of that evidence. This passage should still be a warning to us. We can look in on this and it can be helpful to us. But the main line of application, I think, in the text that we're going to kind of dig into in a sec, is for the person who says, you know, why doesn't God just prove himself to me? Why doesn't he give me a sign? And they've got no desire to do anything about it. And so the question for us tonight, folks, is what do you do about that? When someone has that kind of an attitude, what should you say to them? In fact, more, more importantly, what does God say to people like that? 
Well, we're going to find out in the passage. So let's dig into it. And what I want, you, want to show you first of all is actually Jesus' main point. And it's a pretty simple main point, and it's there right at the start. Jesus is going to tell us in verses 29 and 30 what is the, the final proof, the definitive evidence for us to put our trust in him. Is there reasonable evidence for the Christian faith? Oh yeah, absolutely. Verse 29. This is a wicked generation. It asks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was a sign to the Ninevites, so also the Son of Man will the Son of Man be to this generation. Now, this begs two questions, I think. Number one, who is Jonah? And number two, what's the sign of Jonah that Jesus is talking about? Uh, if you're familiar with your Old Testament at all, uh, you will know that Jonah is the, the wayward and reluctant prophet of the Old Testament, uh, the guy to whom God appears and he says, Jonah, I want you to go and preach to the city of Nineveh. Preach to them that my patience has run out and you are to go and warn them of judgment. Uh, Jonah is not so fond of that command, and so he drags his heels. He, he doesn't really want to go. Um, Jonah was the prophet who God told to say to Nineveh, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That was the essence of Jonah's message, you see. And uh, just to, to kind of fill in the background here, you've got to understand that Nineveh is like the most wicked city of the day. Uh, they are just bloodthirsty and cruel people. They've done heinous things. You can read about them in the history books. And they are the, the enemies of God's people at the time, enemies of the Israelites. And so it's, it's kind of completely understandable that Jonah is not so fond of this command to go and give them a message from God. Uh, how do you think you would feel if God said to you, go and be an ambassador to your greatest enemy? You would probably uh, be a little bit slow to obey as well. So let's not judge Jonah too harshly here. Uh, so here we are. Jonah's refusing to obey God. What does he do? Instead of going east to, to Nineveh, he jumps on a boat and heads completely the opposite direction to Tarshish, the furthest western point known in the world at that time. He's trying to outrun God, and he learns a, a pretty interesting lesson, doesn't he? That you cannot outrun the God of the universe. He owns everything. He is everywhere. And so God sends this great storm to chase down the boat that Jonah is on. The storm is going to break this boat up. Jonah gets thrown overboard, and, and the famous part of the story, Jonah gets swallowed by a giant fish as he's there in the sea. And he's inside that fish for three days and three nights. And it's at the point right when Jonah's hopes have completely gone, when he's at his lowest, when he thinks that all hope is, is gone, that God causes the fish to vomit him up onto a beach. And then, and only then, does he reluctantly still go and preach his message to Nineveh. Uh, that is the, the story of the book of Jonah in a nutshell. And Jesus says to this wicked generation in chapter 11 that no sign will be given to them except the sign of Jonah. Now, do you know what the sign of Jonah is? It's not there in the passage that we're looking at today. It's not explicitly said. It's not told to us in the book of Jonah either. We're kind of left to figure it out for ourselves. What is this sign that uh, Jesus is talking about here? Now, if you've been studying this in your home groups this week, maybe you will have realised uh, or come to the conclusion that what Jesus is talking about is his death and resurrection that that's the sign Jesus is referring to here. Because it's true that in, in Matthew's gospel, one of the other biographies of Jesus, when Jesus is saying this exact same thing to this exact same group of people, Matthew records that, yes, in fact, Jesus says the sign of Jonah is that he is going to die and be raised to life again. Let me read it to you. But Matthew 12, for as, uh, for as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. 
You see, the, the, the pattern that Jonah went through of kind of a descent down into darkness and death, if you will, and then a miraculous re-emergence three days later, that's supposed to be like a shadow for us, a sign pointing forward to Jesus' literal descent into death and his resurrection after three days. That's the sign of Jonah, according to Jesus. That's the sign of Jonah. And that's the one sufficient sign, Jesus says, that this generation will be given. That's the sign. That's the evidence, according to Jesus. You want a sign? God's given you a sign, and it's the death and resurrection of Jesus. So let me say to you, if if, if you've never looked into that, you've never considered factually the death and resurrection of Jesus, can I encourage you to do that? To consider it honestly, intellectually, rigorously, explore it, find out if there's truth in it, because Jesus says that is the one sufficient sign that anybody needs to believe in him. The death and resurrection of Jesus, that's the sign of Jonah, it seems. Some commentators do point out, helpfully though, that actually the the Ninevites who, who Jonah went and preached to, they didn't know about Jonah having been swallowed by a fish and then brought back out three days later. Maybe they pieced it together based on his wardrobe and his aftershave or something. Uh, but there's no evidence that Jonah actually told them that's what happened to them. No, for the, for the Ninevites, all they had to go on was the message that Jonah came preaching, the message that God's patience had run out, judgment was inevitable. That, to the Ninevites, was the sign that Jonah came with and they responded to it. And so I think that's, uh, if we look at, down at verse 32 in our passage today, that's kind of confirmed to us. Look at what Jesus says in verse 32. Uh, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for they repented at what? At, at Jonah's miraculous uh, descent into death and, and resurrection back to life? No, no. They repented at the preaching of Jonah. And so I I think it's kind of right to say that the sign that Jesus is talking about, the sign of Jonah that he says is the sufficient thing that you need to hear about to believe in him, it's both the death and resurrection of Jesus and the proclamation of that fact, the message about it. And, And to the person who has already made up their mind, the person who's just trying to evade Jesus, and says, come on, give us a sign, Jesus, prove it to us. Jesus says, there is just one sign, And it's a sign that actually points forward, just like Jonah's preaching, to a day of judgment. A day when God's patience will run out and God will judge the world by the man he's appointed, the Lord Jesus Christ. And that sign is his death and resurrection. That's the sign, Jesus says, is sufficient evidence, sufficient proof for all people to trust in him. Now, as you hear that tonight, you may well be thinking to yourself, that just doesn't seem right. How can Jesus expect me here now in 21st century Australia to to have that fact, if it is a fact, in history be enough for me to trust in him? I wasn't there. I didn't see Jesus go into the tomb. I didn't see him come back to life. How am I supposed to be confident about that? Perhaps you're thinking like that. Can I point out to you, if that's your line of thought, that actually there are lots of things that you believe that you were not present for, lots and lots of things in life. I believe, I'll give you one example. I believe, for instance, that our pastor, uh, senior pastor Rod Bailey uh, was in a rock band in the 80s. I believe that our senior pastor Rod Bailey had a full permed head of hair and that he used to slay the guitar. I believe that because people have told me it. Credible witnesses have preached that message to me and in fact, there's good evidence about it. You could ask his wife Christine for the photos. I'm not lying to you. This is something I believe because it really happened. 
We believe lots of things that we were not present for, don't we? Can you, I mean, try and apply that rule. If, if you said, well, I wasn't there, how could I believe it? If you applied that rule to everything in your life, there wouldn't be much you'd be able to believe in. Uh, let me paint you a scenario. Imagine I'm married, I have two kids. If I was in the hospital with my wife as our first daughter was being born, and if, uh, you know, just... I was feeling hungry. I popped out to get a sandwich right at the critical moment. I come back in, and there's, there's a, a baby girl sitting on my wife's lap. I couldn't very well say to my wife at that point, oh, Catherine, hey, um, do you think you could just uh, do that again? Because I didn't, I didn't see it with my own eyes, and so I don't really know if she's my daughter or not. I mean, can you just run that thing again for me? It doesn't work that way, does it? History, you see, is non-repeatable. That's, that's obvious. History is non-repeatable. We cannot expect to see the thing that's already happened again. Well, do you know, in the same way, God has given us a sign. It has taken place, the death and resurrection of Jesus. Would you say that you want God to kind of hit the rewind button and to do that again and for Jesus to kind of go back up onto the cross? And Of course not. That's crazy. That, that can't happen, can it? There's just one sign, and that sign is enough, says Jesus. Do you want evidence that the Christian faith is true? Yes, God has appointed a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. You will be summoned to judgment in front of the throne of God. I will be summoned to judgment in front of the throne of God. And he has given proof to that fact by raising his son from the dead. Now, look, make no mistake, I'm not telling you to believe in this with no proof or no evidence. There's, there's good proof and good evidence for the historical reliability of the death and resurrection of Jesus. For instance, the Old Testament just confirms it to us time and time again, page after page. For hundreds and hundreds of years, the Old Testament predicted that God's promised king would die, rise again, and reign and rule eternally as God's Lord and judge. The whole Old Testament speaks with one consistent voice on this. Jesus himself, as he walked the earth for those 30 years before he died, the three years of his ministry, he knew that this was going to happen. He predicted it himself. He said time and time again that that is what's going to happen. The Son of Man will be handed over to the elders and the chief priests and the teachers of the laws of the law, and he will be killed and on the third day rise again. Jesus knew it. Jesus predicted it. You can read it in Luke's gospel back in chapter 9. It's right there for you. And then, of course, there's the witnesses, hundreds of witnesses, over 500 witnesses who witnessed and met and interacted with the risen Jesus after he came back to life. They met him. They were convinced of it. Their lives were changed because of it. And they went around proclaiming it. They proclaimed it. The church was born. And literally billions of people have believed that message over the last 2,000 years. You want evidence? There's evidence for you. And it is plain to see. It is plain to see. I think that's the point, actually, that Jesus is making here in verse 33. Verse 33, let me read it to you. He says, No one lights a lamp and puts it in a place where it will be hidden or under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand so that those who come in may see the light. You know, God is not trying to keep the evidence hidden from us. That's not the game he's playing. It's right there for us in the person of Jesus, in his death and resurrection. It is shining like a light for everyone to see. And so no one can claim, do you get this? No one can claim that there's not enough light for me to see. It's not enough proof for me. No, Jesus says it is a light that is shining and filling up the room. The evidence is plain. 
And the evidence points to the fact that this risen man is God's king and that he will one day bring the whole world to judgment. Do you know that, friends? That this world, this, this experience that we are living right now, that, that where it ends is a day of judgment when we will all meet God. Do you know that it, it has to be that way? Have you, have you grappled with that fact? That if God is God and if this is his world and we are his people, then one day we must answer to him. Uh, one day this play will end. The curtain will descend. The clock will stop ticking. And God will summon all people to judgment. That has to be right, doesn't it? Like I, I, I know that as I say that, that just grates against us because that doesn't, that's not a happy thought. Our culture does not enjoy that idea at all. They don't want to hear that that's where we're heading towards a day when God will hold us to account for the way that we've lived. I mean, you, you just try and float that balloon. You go to a dinner party or something, you're going to have dinner with friends, and you tell them, hey, do you know what? The, the key message of Christianity is that the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is proof that he is God's king and that one day all people will be summoned to face him. That's what Christianity is about. Now, you can have mercy if you come to Jesus now whilst there's time, but you will face God one way or the other forgiven or unforgiven, that's the message of Christianity. If you try and <laughs> float that to people, it lands like a lead balloon. It's not a popular message. I know it seems hard, but it has to be right, doesn't it? That if God is God, he will one day bring all things to conclusion. And the death and resurrection of Jesus is proof of that fact. So, if that's Jesus' point, that there is one sign, one sufficient sign for everyone to believe in him, then how should we respond to that? How do you respond to a sign like that? Uh, you, how you respond to a sign largely depends on what the sign is for, right? Some signs in this world, you, just, you can walk right past and not bat an eyelid and it doesn't make a difference. You drive past those kind of signs of, you know, here ducks may cross the road at this point. You can drive past that 10,000 times. You'll never see a duck there, I guarantee it. It makes no difference to your life. Ignore that sign and go on with living. You can ignore a sign like that. Some signs you can't, though, can you? If you, you're driving into a national park, there's a sign saying bushfire. Well, you would ignore that sign at your own peril, right? Well, in the rest of the passage tonight, I want to show you that Jesus is actually going to warn us. He's going to say, if you choose to ignore this sign, you're putting yourself in great peril. And the way that Jesus does this, the way he achieves it, is he, I think what he does is he paints three pictures, three warning pictures that we are supposed to kind of see ourselves in. Uh, so let me show you the, the, the three pictures that Jesus paints. The first one there is in verse 31. Look with me at verse 31. Uh, the queen of the south will rise at the judgment with the people of this generation and condemn them. For she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And now... Something greater than Solomon is here. Now, the background here, if you've never heard this kind of person before, the Queen of the South, who is she? Pretty obscure uh, biblical character. Uh, she's sometimes called the Queen of Sheba. Uh, you meet her back in the Old Testament in 1 Kings chapter 10. She's the queen of this place called Sheba. She's one of the most powerful and influential women in the world at the time. Uh, and uh, what happens is she hears about Israel's king, King Solomon, who's ruling at the time. And she hears about how famous he is and, and the wisdom that God has given to Solomon. He, she hears that he can answer any question and she's a and intrigued by this. And so she, she wants to go and visit Solomon. And it, if you just pause there, that's quite a remarkable fact in and of itself, isn't it? 
Could you imagine a monarch in this day and age thinking that some other monarchs in some other country is just so important for them to listen to that they would drop everything and go and sit at their feet and listen? It, you know, it wouldn't happen. It's remarkable that she goes to Solomon. She's a busy woman. You know? She's got a country to run. She's a, an important person. She's got an image to maintain. She's got places to go, people to see, things to do. And yet she comes to Solomon. And consider as well, the other, other thing that makes this so amazing is that she travels, Jesus says, from the ends of the earth to go and see him. She is the queen of Sheba, which is kind of modern-day Yemen. So think kind of the south end of the Arabian Peninsula. That's approximately 2,000 kilometres from Israel. And you know what lies between Yemen and Israel? A little thing called the Arabian Desert. <laughs> Not a very hospitable place. So travelling 2,000 kilometres to go and see Solomon, like that's a big deal. And yet the queen of Sheba, she is glad to go and do it. And then we're also told, actually, when we meet her, that she doesn't just kind of rock up empty-handed and expect some answers from Solomon. No, she brings with her this whole like, train of camels who are laden with expensive spices, and she brings mountains of gold with her and precious stones. She considers it an honour and a privilege to go and to meet with this man who has God's wisdom on his lips, and so she will pay any price to go to him. See, the point in that story is that she is hungry to hear from God. However much it asks of her, she's hungry to hear from him. And so, so Jesus here in, in, in our passage again tonight, he's reminding this crowd of the Queen of Sheba. And the contrast is clear, isn't it? The contrast between this crowd and this queen. I mean, she went to just incredible lengths to go and listen to what God had to say. And this crowd, this wicked crowd, they had one who was greater than Solomon standing right in front of them. And they didn't want to listen to him. You see, her example puts them to shame. And that's Jesus' point, actually. Her positive response, her good example, will be called on that final day of judgment as exhibit A that will condemn this generation for their lack of response to Jesus. And so here is the warning, the first warning for us. Let everyone who is avoiding Jesus, who's not interested in him, let them be warned. Because there will be no excuse if you choose not to listen to God's son. That's the first picture Jesus paints for us. Second picture is there in verse 32. Verse 32, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and now something greater than Jonah is here. Uh, as you read through that, that crazy story of Jonah and the whale, really the most amazing thing in that story is not what happens to Jonah, it's what happens to Nineveh. Because when Jonah finally shows up and preaches his little message of judgment to Nineveh, the most amazing thing happens the whole city repents. In fact, I want to read it to you. So let's look at Jonah chapter 3, because this is worth kind of reflecting on. So Jonah chapter 3, he's sitting there on the beach covered in vomit, and what happens? He obeys the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. We get told earlier in the book there's 120,000 people in Nineveh. It's a big city at the time. It's a big deal. And Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city. Okay, so here's what's going on. Jonah's starting his ministry. He's been employed as a prophet and day one, off he goes into the city and he starts preaching. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. 
That's his message. And look, uh, if you've been around churches at all, you will know that this is a pretty weak excuse for a sermon. <laughs> Let's be honest here. He didn't do a great job. He didn't really nail this one. I mean, where's his introduction? Where's his illustrations? There's no call to action here. There's no you know, reflection on the grace and the opportunity for forgiveness that God might offer. He really bungles this one, don't you reckon? It's not exactly a rousing call to action. And yet, look what happens. The very next verse. Joanna preaches this awful message. Verse 5. The Ninevites believed God. <laughs> Who saw that coming? This wicked people responding to a, a reluctant prophet with a message of coming judgment. And what happens? They believe God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them, from the greatest to the least, put on sackcloth. sackcloth. Putting on sackcloth is like a sign of your sorrow, a sign of your repentance. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. You see what's happening here, friends? They all believe. All 120,000 of them believe, and they believe immediately. There's no kind of doubting going on here, is there? No questioning of, Jesus, of Jonah. He shows up with this message and they don't say, Jonah, give us more signs. Where's your proof, Jonah? I'm not convinced, Jonah. No, no, no. They believe. They recognise that, yes, God's patience has run out and they must do something about it. They all believe and they repent immediately from the greatest of them to the least of them, all the way up to the king. One of the funniest parts in the whole book of Jonah is that that fast that the king calls, where he gets the whole, the whole city to, to fast in repentance, that it, it records for us that actually even the animals in the city took place in that fast. That is how thorough the repentance was. Even their livestock stopped eating because of the need to repent towards God. Now that is just a model repentance, isn't it? What more could you possibly ask for? They did the right thing and they did it thoroughly. And again, Jesus wants to contrast that to this wicked generation. So think back to what Jesus says to this procrastinating crowd, these people who are just not interested in him. The men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah and now something greater then Jonah is here. See the warning, friends? Let everyone who is just putting off responding to Jesus be warned. Mercy is available, that's true. Even for the most wicked person, even the most wicked Ninevites could find mercy if they repented. But it's true that one day God's patience will run out. So be warned. That's the second picture for us. The third picture, the final picture there is in verse 34. Verse 34, let's read it together. Uh, your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eyes are healthy, your whole body is also full of light. But when they are unhealthy, your body is also full of darkness. See to it then that the light within you is not darkness. Therefore, if your whole body is full of light and no part of it dark, it will be just as full of light as when a lamp shines its light on you. Now, remember, Jesus, he's already compared himself to the light, that light on a lampstand that's shining for all to see. Here's the revelation of God. Jesus already made that point. And now he's sort of like playing with that metaphor a little bit, looking at it from a different angle. And now he's talking about eyes which let light into the body. And, and, and as you will have discovered in your home groups, this is a very tricky part of the Bible to really kind of tease out and understand what this metaphor is meaning. It's very tricky, but the main point of it is abundantly clear, isn't it? The main point, 
Jesus is warning them and saying to these people who are demanding more proof, more signs, Jesus says, light is not the issue. Your sight is the issue. The reason you can't see is not because there's no light, it's your sight that's the problem. And so the point here is if you don't see Jesus as he truly is, if you don't recognise Jesus as God's king, it's because, spiritually speaking, you're blind. That's what Jesus means here. A couple of years ago, I went to um, an art exhibition at the Art Gallery of New South Wales. It was a travelling exhibition. It was going around the world. And it was uh, a collection of paintings by the uh, 20th century Mexican artists Frida Kahlo and Diego Rivera. They were, you know, masterpiece kind of artwork. Some of the most revered kind of art in all of the world. I was quite excited about going and seeing this stuff. Uh, but unfortunately, as I went to the art gallery, and as I walked in the front door, I immediately started getting a migraine, which was kind of a bummer, because within about five minutes, my vision was just like completely scrambled. It was like you know, looking at one of those like, psychedelic moving pictures. I couldn't see a thing. The artworks, this, this beautiful, glorious stuff was right there in front of my nose, and I couldn't take it in. It wasn't because there wasn't something beautiful to look at, something worth looking at. That wasn't the issue. The issue was my sight. And you see that here is a warning for everyone who fails to recognise what is right in front of them, fails to recognise Jesus as he truly is. Jesus is saying, your sight is to blame. You see there in verse 34, Jesus is making this contrast between eyes which are healthy and which let light into the body and eyes which are unhealthy and which only result in darkness. It's a pretty tricky kind of verse to translate, actually. But that word unhealthy there, some of your Bibles may have a footnote at the bottom there. A better translation for that word would actually be the word wicked. That's what's being contrasted. Healthy eyes, which allow light in, and wicked eyes. That same word that Jesus used to describe this generation back in verse 29, this wicked generation who demand a sign. You see, eyes which fail to recognise Jesus are wicked. That's what Jesus says. Do you know that no one will be able to say to God on the day of judgment, God, it's your fault. It's your fault I don't believe in you, God. You didn't show me enough. There wasn't enough evidence for me to believe. No one is going to be able to say that. God will respond and say, no, no, no. I gave you a sign. I gave you the sign of Jonah. That was sufficient. The death and resurrection of my son. The reason you don't believe is because of your own wicked eyes. Friends, these are serious warnings, aren't they? If we've been hearing what Jesus says here, then this is heavy stuff. This is serious stuff. Jesus wants the crowd to know that if, if you fail to listen to him, if you fail to repent, then you will be condemned on the day of judgment. And we will only have ourselves to blame in that. And so to the, to the person who procrastinates, the person who avoids Jesus, who just plays games with him, looking for sign after sign, but never being convinced, never changing their mind, Jesus says, you've got to know that there are eternal consequences for what you're doing for keeping Jesus out of your life like that. But you know, friends, there is in here the sweetest glimpse of hope. Did you catch it? It's in verse 35. This one shining light into all of this darkness and warning. Verse 35, Jesus says, See to it then 
that the light within you is not darkness. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying don't be given over to the darkness. You don't have to be given over to the darkness. It's not inevitable that that would be your fate. Friends, if you just come to Jesus like the Queen of the South came to Solomon, if you repent at towards Jesus, like the men of Nineveh repented at the preaching of Jonah, if you just allow that light of the world to enter into your heart, then there is no need for you to face God unforgiven. There is mercy available, says Jesus. God has given you the sign that you need, the only sign you need, the death and resurrection of his son. That's what you need. And so see to it then, friends, that the light within you is not darkness. Let me pray for us. Father God, these are really scary words for us to take seriously and to believe them and to to live in light of them. Lord, we know that that will ask a lot of us. We will have to give all of ourselves to you. And yet, God, I thank you so much that even though we are people prone to dismiss Jesus and to keep him out of our lives and to play games with him, thank you that even despite all of that, you offer mercy to us, that the light within us need not be darkness, that you offer to come to us, to meet us, to fill us with light, to forgive our sins. God, I want to pray tonight for anybody who is here who has not come to you that way yet who has been keeping you at arm's length. And God, I pray, please, would you give them the eyes to see your son Jesus as he truly is. Please help them to come to him in faith and repentance, to listen to him, whatever the cost may be. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen.